Welcome to Films in the Wilderness, a six-week limited podcast series during Lent 2021, brought to you by the Diocese of Southern Ohio. I'm Carl Stevens. And I'm Jed Deering. We are privileged to be joined by a very special guest today, Dr. Sheila Moore Andrus. Uh, Dr. Andrus has a dedicated career as an environmental scientist, science manor, manager, educator with a focus on global health. She's a lifelong Episcopalian and has been privileged to participate with others on the presiding bishop's delegation to the UN Conference of Parties on Climate Change. So with some of the topics in today's uh, movie of First Reformed, we're really glad to have uh, Dr. Andrus with us. And Sheila, I wonder if there's anything else you would add by way of introduction. Well, thank you, uh, Jed and Carl, for hosting this wonderful series of of films and um, nothing to add to that that introduction, um, but just a word of, of, of true gratitude that you're bringing people together to be in conversation during Lent about some very important issues. I'm so excited for us to talk about the film First Reformed. Excellent, thank you, Sheila. Well, that's a perfect segue as well, so I appreciate that. First Reformed is our movie that we're discussing today, a 2018 film directed by Paul Schrader and starring Ethan Hawke as the Reverend Ernst Toller. He's the Reverend of, uh, he's the priest at a small uh, historic church in up, somewhere in upstate New York. And this Dutch Reformed church is more of a museum or gift shop in how it's spoken about or understood in the community a very small uh, congregation that attends. It is now, in a sense, owned and operated by a large mega church. And we know it's truly a mega church because there's a cafeteria inside of it. <laughs> and um, so our, our journey goes with Reverend Ernst Toller as he is in a moment of real crisis, already battling a severe drinking problem and major health issues. Uh, he's plunged into crisis when a young man who he is counseling commits suicide uh, while uh, the young man's wife is pregnant with their first child. And the overwhelming issue that has been, uh, that had been really plaguing the young man's life had been his concern for the climate, for the environment, for Mother Earth, and what was happening to it, and asking the question of if God would forgive us for what we were doing to the earth. This experience of um, encountering this young man at this moment of his suicide, and in fact, being the one who discovers his body, uh, merged with his growing consciousness about what is occurring to the climate and the way that the church has often been complicit uh, and is very blatantly in the story, uh, kind of drives Ernst Toller into a deeper place of suffering. And we track his story as he is walking along with pastorally, in some ways healthy, in some ways very much not, along with, uh, with Mary, who is the now widow of her deceased husband, Michael. So we follow their story and journey uh, along the way through the grief after his loss. Is there anything else that either you would add, kind of the summary of this film? Uh, I would add um, that the film was directed by Paul Schrader, which I think you said Jed, but Paul Schrader is a really fascinating director to be doing a film like this. So he wrote Taxi Driver. He wrote Raging Bull. He was a big collaborator with Martin Scorsese for quite a while. Um, he wrote Bring Out the Dead, 
Affliction. Um, and he's directed movies before. And many of the movies he's directed have been quite cynical about human life. <laughs> and many, many of the things he's written have been quite cynical about human life. And watching this movie, I could not tell whether I thought it was a departure from the work he's done before or right in line with it, um, which says something about how complex this film really is. Sheila, do you have anything you want to add about the... Well, um, let me just say that um, I was startled with the film's beginning because he start, starts the film journaling and that was his his way of of seeking to be in deeper, truer conversation with God. My um, my Lenten commitment this year is journaling, and and using that to um, focus my thoughts around the daily lectionary. Um, so I it grabbed me, and I continued to be held through the whole film because um, I'm. Uh, have been a committed um, worker on behalf of addressing climate change for 30 some years. Um, and so the information at the beginning about the crisis that we, we face is, um, uh, was uh, really gripping for me and compelling. And also being married to an ordained person in the Episcopal church for over 30 years. Um, the, um, the portrayal of life in the small congregation versus the mega congregation and the, the tenderness and the, the dynamics of, of characters was also very special. So I, I found this film just um, calling to me from so many different directions. And, and, and I was one amazed that it was produced who, who would fund a film that so thoroughly and beautifully speaks to spirituality in the 21st century and also the challenge of the climate crisis. And so I, you know, again, I, I just think this is an excellent choice for Lent to get people talking. I think that's a very important thing. Um, great. I will read the gospel portion for... Um... For the Sunday after you, dear listeners, have this podcast appear in your podcast feed. And um, then we will talk about how the film fits with the gospel. John 12, 20 through 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Jed, what made you pick this particular film to accompany this particular gospel reading? Uh, I think the key line here that really stuck out to me was, now my soul is troubled. And, and you know, we certainly have uh, troubled souls on several fronts in this movie. Um, you know, we have, we have Michael, the young man, who's uh, in his moment of crisis, you know, he and his wife about to give first to their, give birth to their first child, um, his own deep concerns for the climate and where the world is headed and whether it is right to bring a child into the world. And so you have his troubled soul. We have the troubled soul of Reverend Toller, who is troubled in, in many ways and carrying many wounds and burden from his own life and then from others. Um, so there's that piece in Lent of what do we do when we're troubled? <laughs> you know, where do we go? Where do we take it? And um, so that that piece really stuck stuck out to me, as well as then just that idea around what it means to be willing to follow Jesus into losing our lives. What does it mean to not love our lives? Um, what does it mean to hate our life in this world? Uh, all of these things that I think at times have been misinterpreted or taken to mean people choosing to take on the salvific work of Jesus themselves, of sometimes people choosing and anointing themselves with the label of martyr for a cause and not actually being martyred for a cause. Um, these issues that we see and that come, that come about uh, in this story of First Reformed. And so I was struck by those tensions that are there around you know what it means to be so impassioned by a cause and what it means to give one's life for it to be willing to sacrifice one's life and um at what point is it something is it a life that when it is sacrificed uh it dies and bears much fruit and were the actions that uh were the actions that reverend ernst toller go going to take with his potential suicide bombing um, was that anything that would bear fruit with that radical act to bring attention? And really, did he have a plan around how it was going to bring attention? Or was that it is just his soul had become so troubled and this gave him an out? So I have a lot of questions about this movie, even after watching it for a second time. Um, but I think it especially launched off that idea of what do we do with our troubled souls? So let's jump in there. And, and since you brought up martyrdom, let's talk about it directly if we, if we can. So when the movie begins, towards the beginning of the movie, we learn that Reverend Toller, which, by the way, uh, almost every name in this movie has significance. And I looked it up. Toller means a toll keeper or a tax collector. So uh, Schrader is obviously telling us something about this character that he at least at the beginning of the movie 
sees his role in the world maybe as a toll collector or a tax collector. Um, but he is divorced from his wife because he has had a son who has died. Um, I can't remember, was it stated that it was Iraq or Afghanistan or only heavily implied? Yeah, Iraq. Iraq. Yeah, so his son has died in Iraq after uh, Toller had deliberately pushed him into joining the military because it was part of a family tradition. So there is a sense here that Toller is a keeper of legacy, you know, his family's legacy, the legacy of this church, museum-like aspect of it. Um, and by the end of the movie, when he is putting on that suicide vest, which we should talk about how he, how he attains that suicide vest, um, I think there are, there are a lot of questions raised because obviously Iraq was a place with many suicide bombers. Um, who's, I guess what I, I kept thinking, I wonder if his problem during the course of this movie is in part that he doesn't know what, what story he's in. You know, like he was in the story of tradition, family, church. That fell apart for him. So we see him kind of rootless from story. Then he adopts the story of Suicide Bomber, which I, I, I don't want to call martyrdom because I've preached on martyrs and people yeah. have been deeply confused. I'm talking yeah. about like Christian martyrs and that the seed of the church is um, born in the blood of the martyrs and everybody thinks I'm talking about suicide bombers in Iraq. So uh, to kind of avoid confusion of terms, maybe we could just call this a suicide bomber. Yeah. So there he, he almost goes to the exact opposite story and is saved at the last moment from that story. But um, what, what do we make of this idea of shifting stories so quickly? Well, <clears throat> for me... I think uh, part of the um, insight about, about the Reverend Toller's character comes from the pastor of Abundant Life community. When he said, you're always in the garden, you know, that, that he had learned well how to take in the grief and how to take in the pain, but he had not been able to lift his eyes up. So one of the things that I was really struck by with this movie is that climate grief is real. It, it, it is real. And um, there's, there's actually, from my perspective, there's no greater challenge to humanity today than the climate crisis, because it is the container issue. Everything you care about will be better or be made worse, depending on how we treat this issue. So, the, the character of Ernst Toller learning more, moving more into this, this reality of how we're so interconnected with, with the rest of life on this planet, he was able to take in unbelievable pain. And, and I'm not sure, um, Carl, about the, the role of the suicide vest, except maybe it was just a way to end the pain. Um, mm -hmm. a way to stop the Balk industry, which is, was a source of, you know, a lot of the environmental degradation that was local. But I think, um, I, I think the saving grace is when we're able to not only look at the truth that is painful, but the truth that is good. 
and maybe that's the ending of the movie, is that he's able to um, see that there was the possibility of love in the relationship with Mary. So I've, I've hit a lot of different points here. Um, but um, yeah. Can I jump in real quick, Sheila? Because there's something, there's something you said one earlier when talking about the movie and him taking up the practice yeah. of journaling. And thinking about that, Carl, and what you're sharing around the idea of him kind of jumping from different stories. And in his journaling, is that is it an attempt to find mm. a story, to find mm. like his story because he's lost and disconnected. And as he says, he's no longer even able to pray mm -hmm. with God. And so he's, he's unmoored from that connection. Um, and in trying to find that story, uh, you know, journaling is an attempt in and towards it. But like you were saying as well, Sheila, you know, as he's someone who's caught in the garden and unable to get his eyes yeah. up out of the pain. So he, he's kind of bouncing from one painful place or painful story to another. And it's where, uh, it's, it's almost like it's where he's become too comfortable. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and he's, he's there, like, what will, what will shake him out of that? Um, or plunge him deeper into it, which I think is maybe what we see, you know, occur in the story here. Um, but I appreciate your hopeful reading of it, that there's a possibility of like a love breaking in on the horizon and, um, you know, maybe shaking him free of that, raising his eyes. Well, I think that's right. I think because he's so empty, he is in some way susceptible to other people's point of view or emotions. And so Michael, the 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 man who shoots himself in the woods, the environmental activist, which again, Michael the Archangel, right? Every name in this movie matters. Yeah. Um, he is, he's a character who can see or know only despair. And it feels like that despair is seductive for, mm. to taller for part of the, the film, yeah. really up until the ending. Um, and yet interspersed with that, like we have a moment when he and Mary are riding bicycles together and he says this is the first time he's been on a bicycle in 20 years, right? So that, I think, speaks to what you were saying, Sheila. Like, one way to love the earth is simply to go be in nature, you know? And if you can't do that, you're not going to be able to see the, the hope or understand the hope. Um, I think we're, we are, as Christians, as people of faith, um, this is a very challenging time because I think we're being asked to do what Toller did in this film, which is to look unflinchingly at what is so hard to see, but to see it with the capacity of, of, of God with us and, and to be hopeful. And so there are strategies for that, you know, gathering as a community, being in nature, um, knowing that there are things that we can actually do to make a difference. Um, yeah, his, you know, his disconnect from community yeah. as well, Sheila, really, like, was such a thing for me. Uh, as I was talking about with my wife after watching the film, you know, we were just, she was like, I just, I feel like you would go find other people who are similarly haunted or who were doing the work. And he had, at that point, so yeah. isolated himself. Um, he had so self-medicated. Mm -hmm. He'd so drawn inward. And even his attempt to reconnect with God in prayer was a solely personal act of journaling. 
right? That like um, there, there wasn't that connection to others and there wasn't that work to go find and to build those connections that could bring him up out of it. And with others that could give a sense of hope that this may be daunting, but we can be in it together. And there, there are things being done. <laughs> um, but I have a question to ask, which is, has yeah. he isolated himself from the church or is the church like the military and his other traditions of his life? Has it failed and betrayed him? And I, I think hmm. filmically the, the movie wants us to think that the opening shot is of the first reformed church and it is a worm's eye view like you would get in a horror movie, right? Where you are looking up at this edifice as if it were like a, um, you know, a, a house in a slasher film that, that people are going to go into to die. Um, and, and then everything about abundant life is also seen as something of a lie. Um, I mean, the, the shots of abundant life we get are all interior with no windows, so there are a couple of scenes where he's talking to people in a cafeteria. The sanctuary has no windows. It feels like utterly detached from the world outside of it. And then because names are significant, um, the woman, the choir uh, leader there at Abundant Life, who he's had a previous relationship with, is named Esther. And of course, Esther is one of the two books in the Bible that does not mention God at all. Right. And so this it's as if in that name choice, Schrader is saying um, this is religion that has become detached from God because it's closed itself away into these hermetic spaces where no light and no air can enter. And no wonder it's a museum and no wonder it's um, he can't find community in it because it doesn't offer authentic community. Yeah. And he makes that attempt to like share his heart around the environment, at least with Jeffers. Yeah. Uh, the pastor there played really wonderfully by Cedric the Entertainer, and um, and the and that is just rebuffed. And you see the you see the institutional needs of the large church put before um, anything else, and the willingness to accept money from bulk enterprises. As Another significant name. So bulk in baseball is a way a pitcher cheats, right? They pretend to pitch when they're not pitching and trying to get the batter to swing at nothing. And so, again, I think like Balk is saying, this is all an illusion. This is all make-believe in a, a, a way in which, because a person in the movie, Balk, pretends that he cares about the environment, but it's obviously BS. You know, it's like a, a fake pitch. Um, there is a scene, so after Michael dies, he, he wants his ashes scattered uh, at a, a, a cleanup site. Um, do you know where that was, Sheila? Do you have a like a uh, sense of it was the... a, uh, I think a bulk industry site. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and what was interesting to me about that is there's this choir of, of youth who we see twice in the film, and once is an abundant life, and there's five of them singing, and one of them, this this kind of smirking teenage boy, seems to grab one of the the girl who's singing in front of him in a way that is sexual harassment or, or, you know, he's not there at the cleanup site. <laughs> Just that little move, Schrader is saying, um, as soon as I go outside, even if it is to this industrial wasteland cleanup site, something of this kind of grievous evil that exists within that church disappears. <laughs> it, it, it's um, an unrelenting 
movie in some ways, isn't it? And helping yeah. us continue to move along with Toller through this deepening understanding of how, how much the earth has been impacted, how bad it looks, mm -hmm. how bad it feels. Um, yeah. the, the magical mystery tour scene where um, Mary yeah. and Toller sort of float over the beautiful parts of the planet and then you see what's happened later. Um, another, another example. Um, but it, it's, it's an extraordinary movie. I, I, I think it was fairly well received. Is that? That's yeah. true. Yeah. Very critical. Very well. But it's not a fun movie critically. to watch. It's an important movie, but but not a fun movie, particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when our like so many of the central and indelible images from the movie yeah, are whether they are haunting, like the opening, or whether they're this um, kind of central object of you know the suicide vest that has to get removed and is seen and is you know again they're present with us at the end and you know thinking Carl just about what it means for institutions or places to have failed a people and a person and to the point where they would turn to mm -hmm. suicide bombing and again those ties uh, to Iraq which of course are mentioned with his son's life but then when you think about the way that industry when you think about the way that our pillaging of the environment in those places um, in the Middle East by Western companies has often led to that level of, of despair and reaction that those would choose to choose to enact a suicide bombing. Um, like you, you know, you see these connections, like again, that Schrader is weaving through. Um, but in an interesting uh, perspective as well in the vest that my wife offered, who spent time, she spent a year in Afghanistan mm -hmm. on a tour of duty. And she almost couldn't get past Toller's choice to take the suicide vest mm. out of the garage. Having been in a place where she saw bombs dismantled and specifically trained people with squads come in and the knowing of how one wrong thing that go, one thing goes wrong, even without it being attached and plugged in. And when he made that choice just to take that and not to seek to protect anyone else or the church or her in that moment. For her, that was uh, the moment where he started to betray his pastoral responsibility. And he began to care about or get caught up in something beyond for those who were there. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And just, I had not, that has not been something that registered for me, not having been someone that's been in the presence of bombs. <laughs> and, you know, like, oh, well, you know, it's not armed. And he got it out of there. He did the nice thing. Uh, but really where, um, what that told her about his character uh, and his character as someone also who understood military, who would have understood at least on a base level about how or what should this bomb should have been handled. I mean, I also, I found the ending very powerful. So at the very end of the movie, there's going to be this rededication ceremony at First Reformed, and Balk is coming, and people from Abundant Life are coming. The church is more full than it's been probably in 50 years, you know? And we see these people gathering, and in the, the rectory next door, Toller is putting on the suicide vest. He has told Mary not to come. 
to the service, and we don't know when he tells her why, although we have seen him looking up a suicide vest on the internet. Um, once we see him putting it on, we know that he intends to go and blow, blow himself up and kill all these people. So I, I think murdering a huge number of people is a <laughs> lapse in pastoral responsibility. Um, however, then Mary shows up, so she saves him by coming mm-hmm. in. He then takes off the vest and wraps his naked torso in barbed wire and then puts his vestments over that. So it's almost as if he's, his mind has changed. I cannot punish all of these people I, during this service. I can punish myself. I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. He's just finished putting on his vestments. Mary appears, and they move towards each other, and the movie ends with them um, kissing each other which is very beautiful, and I was very moved by it. At one part of me was screaming out, Safe church! <laughs> this, is not, this is not what a pastor or a minister has any right to do. So, um, so I, too, had, had Rain's perspective on it, where I was a little like, I may know too much about how things are supposed to work here for me to really be able to 100% get behind this ending, because... Mary is somebody whose husband has just died by suicide. She's grieving. She is rife to be taken advantage of. And although we see her move towards him as he moves towards her, um, I think a responsible clergy person at that point would say, I'm sure this is a response of grief. Let's try and find something else to do with that grief. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Um, The final scene was... um felt completely I mean my first reaction was you're not well and she's already lost her her husband this is is tragic please you know Mary run from him Uh Uh, um, but but more than that I just it it seems to me um, the whole suicide vest you know the that part of the film says something about how he's lost complete control. I mean, he has, he's, he's, he's lost complete control. And so I guess a question that I would have would be, you know, what, what would Jesus say to taller? What would the Christ say, you know, going back to your scripture and the grain that falls, um, I think we're being called um, to, to not live part way, to be, but to live fully. But living part way, if it's all just pain or all just joy, is not. It's not fully uh-huh. living. And early in the film, Toller talks to Michael and says that wisdom is holding hope and despair both at the same time. Uh-huh. That that this wisdom, that this path of faith, is holding both, and. It doesn't make for um, easy choices necessarily. I think it's perfect for Episcopalians, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it's it, it's a it's a wonderfully provocative movie for for so so many reasons. But I think we're we're it's giving us a message of being needing to be able to hold both. Well, so with that as well, it reminds me of the scene nearing the end of the movie when uh, a a school group or a group from the church comes in of young children and 
uh, they, Reverend Toller sharing about the history of the church and how those in the Underground Railroad heading up to Canada would come through and would stay in a hidden uh, room underneath the nave there, underneath the floorboards in the church. And, you know, as he, as they lift it up and the kids gather around to look, he starts to share about their experience, but he goes just to this extremely, uh, ex ex place of extreme despair <laughs> as he's sharing with them. And this is one of those other moments where you go, oh, you've lost all hope because mm. he almost can't see or imagine how they, how it was hope that was driving mm. them. Well, yes, it was fear. And yes, it was scary. They were there in hope for their lives and their children's lives and for liberation. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me that Toller was not able to, uh, to tap into yeah. that. Uh, completely unable. And I, I think about some of our conversations that we've been, you know, having recently in our country is more and more uh, white and wealthy people, and especially men are coming to recognize that, hey, the world doesn't always work out for you the way that you think it might. Uh, and as anybody from an oppressed or a minority group would say, like, yeah, yeah. no duh. <laughs> and it doesn't mean falling into despair, like there are ways to hold on to hope and to fight. Um, and he, he didn't have that in his toolbox at that point, or he couldn't access it anyway. But Mary does. So what's interesting mm -hmm. to me, I, I cannot tell whether Mary is a character or an allegory, um, or something in between. Cause she, so in, if, if we were to connect the, the movie back to the gospel reading, you know, here is. Jesus born into another place where despair is so rife, you know, where people have been living under occupation and there have been uh, revolts and uprisings, you know, Jesus, when he was three or four years old, there was a Galilean uprising and people were crucified on the hillside. So you can imagine this toddler wandering past these corpses. Um, and yet into this, Mary, you know, brings a child who is the, the savior of the world. So, I mean, in some ways, that is the Christian story. And, and I think that's what the movie really gets right in a way, that it's not the institution that matters. And it's not, especially not an institution that compromises itself by working with evil so that they can have a nice, you know, media production center. Um, it is... Uh, the heart of the Christian story is that birth of hope into places of profound despair. So all that is great, but in the film, just in terms of the film, if you knew nothing about this, and if you did not have the context of the story, would Mary seem to really have a personality or a character? I found her at times not very believable. Yeah. She seemed way too calm. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I was grateful for her character at the same time. Yeah. Well, I was too. I, but I think it's because I, she functions as an allegory. That's why the ending was powerful to me. Yeah. I was like, he's literally being embraced by hope in the midst of despair. Right. You know? So if we can set aside all the realism we want to bring to the movie, then it's beautiful and powerful. Well, I'm grateful to have watched the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and um, my family would tell you that you accomplished something because 
I will watch a documentary any day of the week, but it's harder to get me <laughs> to sit and watch a movie. But this was. Um, well, you're you're willing to face unflinching truth, I, like you were saying. I, I, I do that <laughs> easily. I'm 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 working on the lifting the eyes up part, and I'm working hard on it. Hmm. Huh. So, from your work with the church, how do you find hope in the midst of despair? What are what are the things that Christians can do? You know, when we're considering the the weight of what's happening to the environment, right? I really appreciate you asking that question. Um, I think beginning a conversation is essential, um, especially in terms of the climate crisis, because it is a crisis. We, 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 we see the changes, they're happening fast. We know that we have shorter windows of time to prevent some of the tipping points, which are disastrous, especially for people who can address the impacts police. So having the conversation, bringing that to our communities so people can talk about how they feel and what they think um, about a changing world and a climate crisis. Um, and this movie is a great vehicle for that. Um, I think it's important for me as an Episcopalian, I've I've thought about my own work to roll out an online program that was voted on at the 2018 General Convention for Episcopalians as a tool in the toolbox for being engaged in this, this work to bring solutions to climate change. Sustainislandhome.org is the program. I think it's important for us to understand that we can make a difference. 40% of greenhouse gases are actions that relate to our households that we are controlling. Mm. So that if you were able to moderate greenhouse gas production of Episcopalians, our footprint of the Anglican communion, that would be as much greenhouse gas as many developing countries produce a year or Coca-Cola produces in its annual production. Hmm. So this is, um, it's a program that's educational. It teaches people options in the areas of how they power their home and nutrition and transportation, those areas where we have control over our choices. In 2018, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said at the Conference of Parties to, at the UN Convention where people gather every year and negotiations are happening about what different nation states are gonna do about climate change. The IPCC said, we have discovered something very, very concerning. We have an aspirational goal of 1.5 degrees of warming. And what we've understood is that many of the tipping points that are disastrous will happen at 1.5. So, so world wake up because every half degree of warming and every choice matters. They were calling on every choice. So this is, this is a moment where if you are a person of faith and there are 4 billion people on planet earth today that see the earth as sacred in some kind of religious tradition. If you're a person 
of faith, then we're being called to support each other, hear each other's stories, stand with those who are impacted, who can respond the least, and, and make choices in our own lives that move us forward. And to me, that's a hopeful thing. That's sort of a, a long answer, um, Carl, but, but I'm, I'm hoping that, um, that it's encouraging because there are things that we can do and we must do. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so how does that tie to creation care? We have a creation care group here at, at our church. Is that, is that a similar program or do, is everything just under the, the umbrella of creation care? Um, so the program I'm talking about is it's online. It's mm -hmm. educational. It has a landing page for Episcopalians. When you go to the landing page, you get a message from your bishop that the bishop has taken time to give us the message. And, and that's not meant in a negative way. It's just that people have priorities. Yeah. But every action you take in your home, and you, there's over 70, um, your action by algorithms is added to others in your church community. Oh. So you can actually see the amount of greenhouse gas that's being driven down by your church, by wow. your diocese, by the Episcopal Church. So why are we doing this? We're doing it because it's important for us to see what we can do as a community. It also helps with our advocacy. You know, Christians um, and other people of faith, of faith need to be at the table. We're actors in the world. We're making choices. We're making purchases. We push policies, and policies are essential. But this program is, is meant to help support the larger effort of every congregation, we'll just talk the Episcopal Church, moving towards sustainability. It, it's not in place of everything. It's, it's in support of, because it is so educational. But in my opinion, um, the climate crisis is the long emergency, and we are in this for from now until into the future, and, we, and we're in it because children and, and, and grandchildren, they, they're depending on this, all of life is. Um, so I'll be very happy to send you some links yeah. at the end yeah, of our conversation. Can, yeah. Um, because we have a team that actually we give webinars and training that is customized for what you need. If it's your congregation, if it's a group within your diocese, because and it's free. Um, and if you're not an Episcopalian, you can go to werenew.net. It's for everyone. So you can share it with others in your community that don't want to come in through the Episcopal portal. That's great. I can make sure to put those up on our site page for this week on week five as well on the website. So everyone who's listening in, uh, if you have interest in pursuing that yourself with your congregation or sharing that with friends, both within and outside of the Episcopal Church, you can go to our Lenten Film Club website and that will be there and available for you yeah. as well. Well, I also think 
one of the things that the film is saying is that we just need to go spend some time in nature as well. You know, I have a, a, a brilliant friend. I think, Judd, you're, you're a friend of hers too, Alice Connor down in Cincinnati. Yeah. And we were talking once about um, Jesus, you know, saying, consider the, the lilies of the field, you know. And Alice was saying, I think he's being literal. I think he wants us to go look at flowers. You know, like this is not, we don't have to turn this into an allegory. We can turn it to practical advice. Go do this and your life will be better. You will be more connected with the environment. You'll have a community, um, which is, which Reverend Toller does not have, you know, um, a community of fellow gazers upon nature, of fellow people out there in the wilds. Well, what's interesting is when he does go out into the wild, it's or out of the doors of the church, it's two places outside. He either goes to a graveyard, which again, spending time in the garden, you know, uh, and then he is going out to the cleanup, the toxic cleanup site, the waste site. And so he is going into places that are keeping him like in the garden and in despair. Now he keeps being in these places of death and of destruction. And yeah, and it's at some point, aside from this bicycle ride, right, where you're like, okay, some time to go and to think and reflect also on the beauty and what you want to sustain and preserve and how we want to transform and not only looking and staring at that, which is, which is despairing. Yeah, I think um, it's, I think it's hard to convince people to do something purely for selfish reasons, like I, which is a wonderful thing about humanity. Like you can yeah. say to people, all day long, we need to sustain the earth so that you'll be okay and your children will be okay. And and for their children, they might do it. For themselves, maybe not. But if if people can learn to love the the thing that they are trying to sustain, then yeah. it is that love that will drive them instead of a, a, a kind of narrow idea of self-preservation, which doesn't seem to be working anyway. So, well, the, yeah. the, the facts are... Um, are not supporting sufficient action, but a yeah. change of heart can. Yeah. And that's and and so I agree with with both of what you're saying. One of the questions that my husband often asks people is, uh, uh, when they a, a sense of wonder that they've had in life, mm-hmm. because what you love, you will protect. That's right. And um, so that's a that's a good a good place to start uh, with any discussion group that you have that's related to concern for, for, you know, planet earth today. Yeah. So uh, we asked the same question at the end of our, of our podcast every week. Um, so if you were to head off into the wilderness, say you are a depressed clergy person of uncertain denomination who has decided that instead of um, putting on either barbed wire or suicide vest, you're just going to go look at some lilies. Would you take this movie with you as you go off into the wilderness to learn to love creation? Hmm. I can get my answer, which is no, (laughs) I would not. Um, because I, uh, one, I would want to actually be looking at nature and not at, at, not at a film in that case. Um, but two, I, I don't want to constantly be carrying the despair on my back. Um, I can find that in other places, but 
I think the answer for me would be no. And I think it comes down to, I feel like maybe a slightly different reading than the both of you have on the end of the film. But I, I see the end of the film as like his kind of ecstatic vision as he's dying from suicide. Ooh. And that because right before she comes in, the pastor's there and attempts to get in the door, uh, Pastor Jeffers, to come find him and it's locked. And we don't see or hear a door or window being broken <laughs> and to know how or what uh, she would have actually come or entered in the room. And I don't think, I think it's meant to be a very open um, ending that's, you know, uh, working on a lot of different levels. But I think, I think ultimately it's not a hopeful film as much as I think it is an important and really good and often beautiful film. I think the filmmaking is really quite incredible. Uh, the cinematography of it, the way that it's shot. Like I, I found myself, strangely, I enjoyed watching the movie very much, but um, I don't leave with a sense of hope, albeit maybe with a little bit of a sense of purpose. Um, I can't imagine taking this film with me <laughs> into, the, into the desert because it, um, it's, it's, a difficult film to watch in a lot of ways, but it's so important. And it's probably the reason why we go to the desert. If I had not thought about these issues before, this is the kind of film that would get me to stop and think about um, the, um, my, my religious institution, my church, my community, um, the world I love, the people I love. So it's probably what put me on the path to the desert. Yeah. That's a great answer. Thanks, Sheila. That's beautiful. Well, listeners, thank you for listening to Films in the Wilderness. Our theme music is provided by the great Brianna Kelly. We are so grateful for the support of the Diocese of Southern Ohio and especially for the work and support of Emma Steinmetz, Christopher Richardson, and Jason Oden. Judd, Sheila, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Carl. Yeah, very much.